0: Hello and welcome to the Training for Influence podcast, brought to you by me, Tammy Banks, Director of Tay Training and founder of the Training for Influence method. But it's not just me who you'll be hearing from. I'll be joined by a selection of our expert facilitators, as well as sector colleagues and fellow organisations. All in an effort to provide important learnings for key workers, people on the front line who are new, potentially inexperienced, volunteering, possibly agency workers, or perhaps returning to work, previously retired professionals. This podcast is not a replacement for training. It aims to highlight important topics to act as an introductory resource for those delivering services under these unprecedented circumstances. We asked our facilitators to select five top takeaways from a course they deliver. Takeaways the delegates have fed back that are really key or they as a facilitator think are fundamental to the session. In this episode we'll be speaking to TAFE facilitator Sarah about the top learnings from our professional boundaries course. We'll be briefly covering what are professional boundaries, boundary types, the struggles, trauma-informed working and emotional resilience. So Sarah delivers professional boundaries, safeguarding, risk management and equality and diversity for Tay and she's been delivering courses for us for about three years now. Welcome Sarah. Hi. Hi, it's brilliant to have you here. Thank you very much for giving up your time to record this podcast with me.
1: It's my first ever podcast, I'm excited.
0: Ah, fantastic. I'm excited to have you on as a guest. You listened to a podcast in prep for this podcast, didn't you?
1: Yes, I did, Yeah, I love listening to podcasts in general around all kinds of things. So I think it's really good to have this included in the whole spectrum of podcasts. You know, people can listen on the way to work, when they're laid in the bath or whenever is good for them. So I think it's a, a real good media to have.
0: Yeah, I agree. If we can share knowledge with people across lots of different platforms and meet lots of different learning styles, that's exactly what we should aim to do, isn't it? Yeah, completely. Sarah, could you just tell us a little bit about why you deliver this course for us and what your connected work history is?
1: I started off when I was around 17 and I was a volunteer youth worker and I was a young mum. I had a baby at 15 and I kind of enrolled in a volunteer programme to progress myself. Back then there was not much anything else out there and found a passion for youth work and, and working with young people. I was with that company for 18 years and became the Young People's Sexual Health Worker, which involved going to schools, group work, one-to-one work, supporting young people, going to sexual health clinics, supporting young people that had been sexually abused. Really, really loved being a youth worker. And then from there, I progressed to working for a company called Blast, which was one of the only companies in the country that worked with young men that had been sexually abused, that had been part of child sexual exploitation. That was a real eye-opener. And I was their Young People's Education Development Officer. And it was around making resources and going around schools and educating young men and young women around the risks of CSE and what to look out for and this whole kind of getting away from the stranger danger because it's not generally not strangers. So I really, really enjoyed that. But that was just a short piece of work. And from then I went to work in a complex needs children's home and became a registered manager. That was around three years ago. That's been an eye opener. But I am really, really loving being the manager of a children's home at the minute and can see how I can make things change and make a real difference to these very traumatized children.
0: Fantastic, thank you Sarah and really clear there that you've got such a kind of intense work history with regards to connected experience and I think it'll be really clear to our listeners why you deliver our professional boundaries course and why we're talking about that today. I know because we had a chat just prior to this about what your learning points are. I know that you felt it was really important that we start with learning point number one and understand what professional boundaries actually are and what the term means. Yeah, I think that that is a good basis of a start because I think it means different things to different people. So what are professional boundaries then? If somebody says that term, how should we be interpreting it?
1: I think it needs to be really clear. It's about what is expected of a person in a job role. It's about clearing out how they feel, how they've been brought up, their personal opinions, be it political, be it any other opinion on things that go on in life. It's then very basics. It's about taking that away and really making it very black and white, that in terms of an actual job role, this is what is allowed and this is what isn't.
0: Yeah, I I love that recognition there about it's not what you should and shouldn't do. At this point with professional boundaries, it's about what you can and can't do. And actually, it's about leaning into those policies and processes within the organisation
1: that really explain that in detail for you. Yeah, and it's to keep people safe, both the clients and the workers. If there's a real clear process and a real, not stringent, but I feel sometimes it has to be very black and white and there's not a lot of movement on that in in some workplaces. But if it is very black and white as to what you can and can't do, then it protects everybody.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting because it's a balance, isn't it? Because we need, it to, is a balance. We need to know what we can and can't do. But w- within the services that we work, building positive and effective relationships is actually really key to helping somebody move forward positively
1: within their life. Absolutely. And that's what makes professional boundaries so hard in this line of work, because to be able to build them relationships, you need to give a little bit of yourself. Anybody could sit there and be a robot and not answer questions on the you know, the very basics. Some of the examples are, where are you from? You could have someone that would go, oh, well, I can't tell you that. That person's then not going to trust you and want to engage in conversation with you. It's about finding your way around and really knowing what the boundaries are in terms of what you can give and what you can take away from that person. And like I said previously, just keeping yourself safe. And if there is a clear process there, then your personality will shine through and you will find your way around that and find different ways to work.
0: I think what's key within that is recognising that actually different job roles will have different expectations of you as well. So, for instance, when I worked in the prison service, then we absolutely were told very clearly our policies said we didn't share personal information about our families, our locations, our addresses, etc., When I've worked in hostels with young people, then I was quite open about the fact that I had a young family. I didn't share the names, I didn't share my address, I didn't give intricate details, but they absolutely knew that I had a young family outside of work, and we talked about that
1: at relevant times. And and sometimes you can use your own experiences. And I think it's about knowing your client group, knowing the person that you're working with. You can pull on your own experiences. Sometimes that's really helpful in terms of building them relationships. I used to run a a young mum's group and I was able to say, yeah, I had a baby at 15, but look at what I've done. If I wasn't able to say that, then I wouldn't have got the outcomes that I had got. It's about finding that fine line giving that little bit to tap into what that person needs, but not giving to, it sounds really complicated now, doesn't it? (laughs)
0: I think it is really complicated, though. It is complicated. It's one of those really complicated subjects where actually policies and processes are so, so important here because we can lean into them and we can help them set the parameters for us. But also, we need to understand the rationale behind those policies and processes. Professionally, we have to have those boundaries. And actually, I learned within my career that it's really important when we're working with people that we're really honest with them about expectations. expectations and about what our boundaries are and that we'll be sticking to them and why we'll be sticking to them. And actually I've got many an example of where people have responded really positively to me because they've absolutely known what the parameters are and they've known what the
1: context is that I'm going to work within. Yeah and what's going to happen. Yeah. And you know what's going to happen if they say X, Y, and Z, they know the outcome of that. Yeah, absolutely. Gosh, we're still on learning point one. We could just talk about this
0: for ages one of the things that I love about this course when you do this introduction part about what our professional boundaries and why they're so important is people give their own experiences I guess a little bit like we have you go on to talk about kind of what are the common traits of different boundary types. And there's this really nice, I guess, infogram, diagrammy type thing, which shows red, amber and green and talks about having rigid boundaries as a professional, having porous boundaries as a professional, and then having healthy boundaries as a professional. Mm -hmm. And that really sticks in my mind about the importance of actually recognizing the difference between the boundaries that you're displaying and actually the impact of those as well. But I will put in the show notes some really good, clear information about different boundary types for people so that they can find out a little bit more about those if they want to. I know that your learning point number two was actually about why we need professional boundaries, wasn't it?
1: yeah and it feeds into what we've just spoke about about the importance of why we need them and what can really happen I always think and I think you sometimes have to think in this line of work worst case scenario and worst case scenario if we didn't have these boundaries People can be abused. We've seen it many, many times in serious case reviews of a workplace culture where really bad practice and abuse was just seen as the norm. And because the staffs were friends and they didn't know the whistleblowing policy, or they didn't know how to whistleblow, or they felt they would be victimised and bullied if they did, then abuse has gone on in care settings and other settings that work with vulnerable people. And that is why it's so important to have boundaries to protect the people people that we work with and to protect the staff as well you know protection from allegations allegations are so common in this line of work and i think without these boundaries in place there would be a lot more workers being suspended workers going to court vulnerable people going to the police because they've been abused or neglected by people that are taking care of them and i think that's why it is so important to have these boundaries in place because it just keeps everybody safe
0: yeah Lets us know what the parameters are and helps us operate within those parameters, and deliver that service that all of our young people, our service users, our customers, all of them deserve, and they know what to expect from us, because actually there's nothing worse than them not knowing how a professional is going to respond to them. If you're clear about your boundaries and you're clear about their expectations, everything is a lot easier.
1: Yeah, and I think the work that we do is very emotive. There's a lot of times that we're in very crisis situations. It might be a crisis situation where it's six o'clock on an evening and you've got to rehome somebody or somebody's gone into crisis and they're assaulting you in the street, but you've got to pick your children up by half past six. As a worker, it's very easy to slip over the line without noticing that, particularly if the client that you're working with brings up strong feelings and stress and anxiety in yourself. If you have a guideline around what you are and you aren't allowed to do, it almost kind of brings you back and brings it back into line. I think
0: that's really important because you've touched on there as well about recognizing that as professionals, we are individuals ourselves, we have our own lives, we have our own struggles, we have our own stresses, our own triggers, etc. And actually, if within the emotional work that we're doing, something is triggered for us, or we're in a complex or chaotic situation, and we're responding emotionally, to recognize and know what our professional boundaries are within that situation is really, really reassuring. Just helps you helps you to keep a check on yourself. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I guess one of the top tips that we're going to say on this podcast specifically is if you haven't read your organisation's professional boundaries policy, do go and read it because then you'll know exactly the parameters that you need to act within. And one of the things that I've found when I've started working with new service users on the front line is actually being really clear with them about what you can and can't do right from the beginning and how you will and won't operate what you can and can't share, etc. Right from the beginning, they really Really, really respect value and respond well to that so if you haven't read your policy and I know some of you won't have done please do go and read it because it's one of the most important I think out of all of the policies
1: it is it is and I think as a manager we send policies around when something's gone wrong or people revisit the policy when they are a little bit worried about something by then it's sometimes too late you need to be kind of proactive about it rather than reactive and. We know when you start a job and you, you have an induction and you are given a 1,000 policies to read, professional boundaries policy is really, really important.
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: It's certainly up there
0: with the um, safeguarding policy and the risk management policy, isn't it? Yeah,
1: yeah, definitely.
0: We've already started seamlessly, I think, talking to learning points. We
1: are, we are seamless. We flow from <laughs> one to the other. <laughs> it's
0: great, isn't it? Uh, so number three, you highlighted the struggles Tell us a little bit about what the potential
1: struggles are. I think the struggles do come down to you as a person. I think it's very black and white to have this policy. But what it doesn't include is the type of person that you are. And that is where the struggles can come in, that you want to go above and beyond and help this person. And by doing that, it does mean that you are bringing parts of your private life in or you unwillingly, from an outside point of view, favouritising somebody. And then you get other clients that are then thinking, well, why don't I get that treatment? And then it causes conflict in that way. And then from an outside perspective, from other colleagues, maybe they might be thinking, well, why is that person doing this for them when they're not doing it for everybody else? It can create a lot of resentment. I think as a person, it could create a lot of guilt that you really, really want to help this person. And you know that, let's say you have a client that has not got a TV, but you know you've got a spare TV at home that you could quite easily give them because it's sat in your garage. And it's that guilt of knowing that you've got that, but not being able to do something about it, because really you can't. Yeah, and that's a really good point and a really good way of having
0: self-reflection because I know on the course there's an activity where you have to think about two different people that you're working with and the way that you interact and respond to both of them and why you respond differently. And of course, we do as individuals, we naturally have a connection with some people and not with Mm -hmm. other people. And that could be for a whole variety of reasons, down to you support the same football team or you've experienced similar abuse in your own past to you like the same food. The connections can
1: be for any reason. And I also think your own judgments as well. You know, you do go in with a preconceived idea of what that person's going to be like. Absolutely. And that's right
0: across, I guess, all different demographics. Everyone, yeah. every Yeah. yeah. When we're talking about preconceived ideas and who we, who we naturally connect more with, it is generally people that we have similar histories or experiences or have something in common with. But occasionally that's where the professional boundaries can be a real struggle, can't they? Because actually those natural connections, it feels like we're fighting against them.
1: Yeah, or it can feel very forced and very rigid. And again, that will fail because I think the thing that I've learned about working with people is that if you're not genuine, then you'll very quickly get found out. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that person won't work with you, trust you or disclose to you or work on a journey with you because they will think you're being disingenuous.
0: Yeah, it is it's a balance. When you said at the beginning, you know, this is really difficult. It is really difficult. It's a real balance. And I know from looking back over my work history, when I first started working with young people in a secure children's home back when I was 21, I reflect now on some of my professional boundaries then. And gosh, my manager must have
1: wanted to shake me. Oh, absolutely. I completely see where you're coming from. When I first started working in youth work, we used to have this girl and she wouldn't mind us talking about her because she's in her late 20s now and she's got children of her own. But she was 13 and she'd had a ridiculous amount of foster homes. But our youth project was the only place that she would come to. And her social worker dropped her off one evening at five o'clock with all her suitcases. And she had nowhere to go. And I brought her home. And I fed her. And I washed her clothes. And I waited for someone from social services to come and pick her up. Did I get into a whole heap of trouble for that? Of course I did. And looking back now, I was in my early 20s. I shouldn't have done that. Really shouldn't have done that. But my emotions took over.
0: Yeah. But now reflecting on that as a manager of a children's home and thinking about if one of your children were taken in by one of the staff members working for you, why would you be worried about that?
1: Oh multiple reasons meet your family know where you live see your home environment they grow an attachment to you next time they get kicked out of somewhere are they going to turn up at your door it opens wide open a whole list of issues where upon reflection I should have stayed at the youth center with her and fed her there and stayed there with her till 10 o'clock at night or whenever it was that someone from social services came and picked her up but you know the young 20 year old me just wanted to bring her home and look after her
0: yeah so on reflection now years later as the manager of a children's home you have a different you can reflect on that situation differently and look at it from different perspectives actually at that time you were dealing very emotionally with that situation and hopefully by listening to this podcast some people will be introduced to the fact that there will be situations like that that are difficult and that's when we need to step into our professional boundaries ask for support talk to our colleagues and our managers The other thing I was going to say is you were talking about struggles earlier and you were talking about treating different people differently. And one of the things that it made me think about as well was how other staff feel. If there's one member of staff that is breaking the rules or sharing too much information or treating one person differently to the other person, actually the service users can have expectations that other staff treat them that way as well. And that can put other people
1: in unsafe situations. That causes so many issues in my line of work at the minute. Sometimes really big issues that, well, they let me do that. Why don't you? and sometimes results in violence and ends up in complete crisis points, especially with children. They don't understand why one staff member will do that, but the other one won't, and they will relate it back to them. And it does have a knock-on effect. And I think eventually what will happen is the staff members that are following professional boundaries, they will get so run down, bogged down with the result of sticking to the rules that it will have this knock-on effect that everything just gets so lenient. And people just do what they want to do and and are a little bit too lenient. And then before you know it, you have the whole staff team doing that. Then that's when you get the culture of where things can go really, really wrong. Yeah, and become really, really dangerous. Yeah, absolutely. We've seen that in many serious case reviews. We've seen that that can happen, that institutionalised workplace. And people just think that's the way to work.
0: Yeah. So hopefully people are going to avoid that. They're going to listen to this podcast, go back and read their policies, recognize the importance of having professional boundaries and being really clear with those boundaries and being really informed about what they are. But also, I guess that real recognition of what you've highlighted really well there is that this isn't easy, but it is important. And it's important not just for the staff member as an individual or the volunteer as an individual, but actually this really is the best thing for our service users and our customers because we are only a point in their life and we don't want them to become attached and reliant on us. We want them to absolutely have access to the best service possible, but then be able to move past us and move on and live their best life.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's about progression and giving the people the tools in life to be able to deal with the trauma, deal with what's happened in their past and really kind of progress in their lives and develop that emotional resilience and then really important life skills that they need to go on in life. We are part of that journey and we are so important in that journey. We come in at really, really key points, really key points where we're actual role models and they're learning off us yeah so that is, you know it's so important
0: yeah and particularly as well do you know I always think back to the fact that lots of the people that we're working with have experienced inconsistency and chaos and there's dis- no routine like, no boundaries yeah We've been given a snapshot in time in their life to actually role model the positivity of actually having those boundaries, having that respect, knowing what to expect, the consistency of the approach, and really helping them to recognise the importance of that. And I know certainly in some of the situations that I've been in, when the service user
1: hasn't known how the staff member is going to respond,
0: it's actually really increased their anxiety and stress.
1: Yeah. And they will test and they will push boundaries. And sometimes they will go to the extreme of the extreme to see what will happen and how that person will respond. Yeah.
0: Whereas if they know exactly how people are going to respond in a given situation, then actually that consistency and that clarity is really reassuring and reaffirming for them and gives them that feeling of safety.
1: Yeah. And I think from what I've learned through my whole career, and especially now working with young children that have experienced really severe trauma, is that it's routine boundaries and honesty are the things that really matter. They need to know what they're doing, what they can and can't do. Because like you said before, Tammy, their lives have been so chaotic and disjointed. And sometimes they don't know if they're going to get fed tomorrow. So I can't stress enough how important it is to have them routine structure and boundaries. And you might at the time feel that you're being harsh or you are laying down the law. You know, and there's times where I feel like that. I think you know, I'm being really strict, but in the grand scheme of things, I'm not because that's what they need. Yeah, and actually you're
0: responding in in a way that's best for them rather than best for you at the time. Yeah, not how I feel, exactly. But, But let's face it, sometimes it's easier just to let them do what they're asking to do or to not be as strict or whatever. Sometimes it's easier, but that's about us, not about them. Yeah. I would also say, though, do you know, from I've worked in adult services for years and years, and I know you're going to talk in a moment about being trauma informed in your approach. But I just wanted, I guess, to connect the fact that everything you're saying here relates to the adults I've worked with as well. And quite often, the adults I've worked with have had 20, 30, 40 years of inconsistency, of chaos. Not knowing what the rules are, how people are going to respond to things. And quite often, when they've come to a service and in other services they've not known what to expect or people's boundaries have become blurred, actually they breathe a real sigh of relief. Sometimes they push back a little bit at the beginning to see whether actually you really are going to stick to your boundaries and support them in the most effective way, but within the parameters of the role. But then They really, really respect you for it and respond well. And they're the service users, actually, I've seen transformational work done with.
1: Yeah, I know from going to London and working with some of the companies and charities that we work with in London, and they're working with prisoners and a high percentage of them prisoners have come through the care and the foster system where they've been moved multiple times. They don't trust anybody. They've had no structure, no routine. And it's just been chaotic. And for a lot of them, being in prison is stability and routine and boundaries.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Which is really sad, isn't it? It's sad that actually that's where they're getting that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I think as workers working in a trauma-informed way it begins with an understanding of the physical the social and the emotional impact of trauma on the individual because it filters through every fiber of how they trust people how they respond to situations their resilience to stress and big life stresses how they respond to that you know their aspirations for their future how they bring up their own children And I think that's why a trauma-informed approach is really important to be able to understand a person is the person that they are because of what they've experienced. It's not a one size fits all that you can go in and work with a person and go in and and fix them and, and do a certain scheme of work and it will work. What you really need to understand is, do they push people away because this has happened? Do they not trust people because this has happened? Have they got an addiction to alcohol and drugs because X, Y and Z has happened? You've got to really think about it in a trauma informed way and pick apart at what's happened to then be able to cater to what that person needs.
0: Yeah I completely agree and I think it's important here that for the listeners that we're kind of clarify what we mean by trauma-informed approach because some of our listeners will be working in services where they're not offering any therapeutic services whatsoever to service users and being trauma-informed in your approach isn't about offering a therapeutic service it's about exactly what it says being informed and delivering your services with a consideration of the fact that the people that you're working with may have experienced trauma So it isn't a case that, because there are, there's absolute theories and academia and evidence, Mm. and actually it's really getting into the adverse childhood experiences in particular, and then looking at trauma-informed right through and the impact in adulthood is a really, really intense, important and interesting topic to explore, but equally for some people... That won't be what's needed. They won't need that depth of information. But if you can deliver your services from a trauma informed perspective, just recognising that the people that you've worked with may have experienced trauma, then delivering your services under the six key principles of the approach is what makes a difference. And that is about delivering from a safe perspective. So that really plays back into those professional boundaries so that people are safe and secure in the service that you're delivering. They know what to expect. Delivering your service from a transparent and trustworthy perspective, giving and sharing that peer support. So it's not about I am better than you. I am the professional. You are the service user. It's about the fact that we all are human beings, but we mm. have different roles at the moment. I'm in a professional role supporting you in this way at the moment. That doesn't make me any better or any worse than you. It's about that collaboration, so working together and them being involved in everything rather than us as a worker doing things for them. It's about really empowering them and it's about really respecting and understanding their wider issues about maybe cultural issues or historical or gender issues. You don't need to know this detail with everybody that you're working with. but Actually, if you keep those six key principles in your mind, When you're undertaking your roles, then you're operating your roles from a
1: trauma-informed approach. Yeah, and a lot of people do it without even realising that they're doing it. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that's to be recognised as well. You know, there is a lot of workers out there that automatically, by their very personality, do this anyway. And it's about sharing that good practice and your team meetings and your supervisions and sharing that good practice and how you've tapped into certain things. And that's helped you understand this. And if I'd have known this, then I would have understood that a little bit better. It's just about knowing the person that you're working with.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's so important. I'm so glad that you said that, Sarah, because when we talk about delivering from a trauma-informed perspective, quite often frontline work... It sounds really complicated. Yeah, it does, yeah. <laughs> they, they panic, don't they? And go, yeah. oh... Gosh, there's all these psychological theories behind it and such like. And yes, there are. But actually, some of the things really aren't rocket science. They're what lots of people are doing every day within their role already. And it's about recognizing the importance of doing those within your role. Yeah, one absolutely. Of one of the real big learning points for me, actually, this was years ago, but was when the first time I ever managed a homeless hostel for young people. And when I moved in, the, when I moved in, when I started that, that role, the hostel looked like a hostel and it was. Mm-hmm grey walls it was dirty people had thrown things around there was graffiti everywhere and anybody that's listened to these podcasts or watched my ted talk will know that i spent four years living homeless as a teenager and then spent a couple of those years within homeless hostels and i remember really strongly how the hostel felt like a hostel it didn't feel like i belonged there it felt like i was passing through and actually i didn't invest in it whatsoever So when I started managing my first young people's hostel, I asked the young people there how they felt and actually they wanted it to represent a home more. And it was a long term, so they were all going to be there for up to 18 months. And so we literally, they literally actually with us as staff helping them, we all did it together. Painted the walls, got cushions, got pictures, got duvet covers, all of those little things that you might not think matter. But actually what I felt when I was younger and what they reflected to me when I was in a position of authority, I guess, when I'd taken that role, was from a trauma-informed perspective, we need to be feeling safe. We need to be feeling like we're invested in this and that this is our safe space at this point. Can you really do that if it's got magnolia walls, graffiti?
1: I I completely understand where you come from. I think in terms of running a children's home, we want it to look like a home. We don't want it to screen children's home from outside. And the furnishings are nice and the children's bedrooms are lovely and there's toys everywhere and paintings. We've got paintings that they've done at school on the fridge, if you would, in your own home. And the staff as well, treating that as a home, not a workplace. You are coming into their home you come into their space.
0: But you can also see just from this conversation here how this is really confusing because in one breath we're saying you're a professional Treat it like a home, yeah. <laughs> and in the other
1: breath we're saying we want it to be like a home. So it takes some real consideration. Taking apart. I think for me, things like the children coming home from school and smelling home cooking, it's having that Sunday dinner. And that's a routine that on a Sunday we have a Sunday dinner.
0: Yeah. You know, having professional boundaries does not mean not being personable at all. I, no. It really is about just understanding where the parameters of your role are. It isn't about taking away your personality.
1: No, not all. Not all. And you'd be absolute robots otherwise. Yeah. Absolutely.
0: But interestingly, this takes us on to our fifth and final point. And this is a really important one with regards to professional boundaries. And it's interesting, Sarah, because you've listened to the podcast, you'll hear that I say about emotional resilience at the end of every podcast and thank people. But also on the Safeguarding podcast, this has come up. On the Managing Challenging Behaviour podcast, this has come up. And on those podcasts, the facilitator has brought up emotional resilience as one of the learning points from the perspective that actually, if your emotional resilient, resilience is low personally it then leads to your professional boundaries being blurred which then potentially will lead to difficult decisions or inappropriate decisions or unsafe decisions with regard to risk management and safeguarding so actually I love the fact that you've brought this up too because it shows that golden thread and that interconnectivity between all of the courses that we teach and that we facilitate this is really really important isn't it
1: yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a credit to the kind of industry that you're in and the jobs that we do. It's not a job where you can come home at five o'clock and go, well, worry about that tomorrow. But it's about having that emotional resilience and boundaries that you know where your shut off is and how to protect yourself. Because you're working with people that are so vulnerable that, you know, you've got old saying you can't pour from an empty cup. You really do need to kind of take care of yourself to be able to take care of other people.
0: Yeah, Absolutely.
1: It's hard. It's hard. When I first started my training in my 20s, and I'd go on training courses around safeguarding and abuse, and I'd go home and be really, really, really upset. Really upset. And then on the flip side of that, after I'd done it about 15 years, my manager once pulled me into her office and said, Sarah, you've not put any causes for concern in. And at the time, I was working with young people that had been sexually exploited, and I was working in the sexual health clinic, and it really made me think, I haven't put any causes of concern in. Why? And it's because I'd become so numb to things that nothing alarmed me anymore. So I went from one extreme to the other. And just from having that conversation with my manager really made me think I've become numb to this. Nothing shocks me anymore. Nothing concerns me anymore. And that was a real turning point for me to make me recheck myself and the way that I was processing things. Do you know, I think you're the first person that has brought that up when we've talked about emotional
0: resilience. I think you're the first facilitator who's given that example that actually goes both ways. It's not only that you'll be over affected and impacted and therefore some of your decisions might be influenced. It can also be that you become numb to it, that you're seeing situations as the same, that you're not giving as
1: much to that situation because emotionally you've turned off from it. Yeah, emotionally turned off. I've become so used to working with trauma on a daily basis, especially in sexual health, you know, real crisis situations with young people that it just became the norm for me. I really had to think about how my thought process had changed and was I doing the best job? Was I picking up on things that indicated sexual exploitation or was I just doing my job and supporting that young person and then going home and not thinking about it? I mean, that was around 10 years ago and it was, it was a real learning curve for me was that was my manager pulling me in and just asking that question. You know, why am I not concerned anymore?
0: After your manager pulled you in and asked you that question, what did you do?
1: how did you change your practice? I took longer to process things. I had more kind of debriefs and more regular supervisions with my manager. I was very much that I could just run with this and I could deal with the world myself (laughs) and I had to have more regular supervisions and run things past another professional rather than thinking that I could deal with everything myself and just you know having another pair of eyes on it.
0: Yeah, that's so key, isn't it? Involving other people and having those people that you can talk to, the colleagues, managers, and looking out for each other, but also leaning into each other a
1: little bit. Yeah, and drawing on other people's kind of strengths and weaknesses. I still do it to this day. I can hear at work someone's talking about a situation. I've got, oh, but have you looked at it like this? And maybe just playing devil's advocate a little bit. And just by doing that, it can make people think a different way. And I do think in this line of work, we can't take things for granted and we have to look at things from every single possible angle and above and below and every other way, shape or form to kind of get the full picture and make sure that you are supporting that person the best way that you can.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And you said a couple of things there that I think are really, really key. And one of them is about the fact that we all have responsibility here to our own emotional resilience and recognising and spending some time to reflect on our own professional practice. It sounds like that's exactly what you did within that circumstance.
1: Yeah, definitely. But it's made me a better manager now because I can support my staff team and I really understand where they're coming from. And you can see when it's getting too much for people, you can say to people, you know, debriefs, you know, do you need a timeout? You know, do you need to just go sit and think for half an hour and just have a little bit of space to yourself? Yeah. You know, because everybody has something going on. And I think especially during these current times that we've had, people are trying to juggle work and childcare and the schools are shut and everything's shut and you can't see people and might have to support your elderly relatives it's been really really difficult and i think in terms of professional boundaries it's been even harder because you are juggling so many more balls and I actually, our worlds our professional worlds and our personal worlds are colliding a little bit um, yeah yeah we've got zoom skype everything has collided a little bit but again it's about keeping it as professional as you can And just really taking care of yourself. Things are hard. Things are hard in life in general. And then doing this kind of work adds another layer onto that. And it's, it's about looking after yourself. And I think I can't stress enough that if you do feel like things are getting too much, to say something to somebody, speak to a colleague, speak to a manager. And it's just about learning the tools of how you manage your own emotional resilience. And you don't get burnout because if you have burnout, you're no use to anybody and you're no use to yourself. No use to yourself, no use to your family,
0: no use to your You know, the impact is huge, isn't it? But I guess a couple of things I just want to pick up on that you just said there, Sarah. You said about it making you a better manager. Now, I think this is so important. There's times within our lives, within our professional lives, certainly, where actually we don't recognize that we're struggling and we need other people to look out for us. Um, Managers are ideally placed, but equally so are our colleagues. And so it is about really looking out for somebody else. And if you see them as a professional acting in a way that you wouldn't expect them to act, then actually talk to them about it, ask them. I really, keenly in my life, I used to work within a prison and I used to deliver group work with high-risk people convicted of sexual offences. And it was at a time when my marriage broke down. And actually three or four weeks after my marriage broke down, my manager came to me and she told me that I was having four weeks off work and that I was going to be seeing the employee assistance programme. I was furious with her. So furious. I really did not know what she was talking about. And I was so cross. Four weeks later, when I returned to work, and to this day, when I reflect on it, seriously, that was the best thing she could have ever done to me and done for me. She had recognized that my behavior was changing. And although I hadn't broken any major rules or blurred any huge professional boundaries, she was trained to recognize those early signs and she yeah. that as an individual I was responding differently than I had done 12 weeks before when actually I wasn't going through that stressful
1: personal situation. Yeah absolutely and it's so good of her to recognize that and to be able to know you and to almost take the lead and take that responsibility off you and say this is what you're doing. Yeah. Sometimes that's what you need someone to do.
0: Well, I I did need it because I remember as well. I remember her having a couple of conversations with me first in supervision and me just making excuses. But at the time, they didn't feel excuses. They felt very true and I believed them. And it really wasn't until reflecting quite a time afterwards where I could see that actually I was
1: fooling myself to an extent. I wasn't doing okay at all. (laughs) Yeah. You just kind of, it's that clodding on and powering through and thinking that you're doing it for the best, isn't it? But actually, sometimes it's not for the best.
0: No. And sometimes we can't recognise our own
1: limitations and we're great at giving to other people, but not so good at giving to ourselves. So, But I think most of the people I work with that I've met in this kind of sector are great at working with other people and helping them. But when it comes to helping themselves, sometimes they're last on the list. Yeah, but that's
0: why we need to look out for each other as well, though, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and it's about upskilling your staff. I think that's where it is. I definitely had that when I first started working in the job role that I am now. I was putting all of my focus into that, into these other children, and my own children were almost working in the background, going, "Hello, hello, what about me?" Because when I was coming home, I was so exhausted and emotionally drained that I had no time for my own children, and their small teenage problems were almost minute in comparison to what I was dealing with at work but it was still their problems and it was still important to them. Yeah, absolutely. And it was, again, about upskilling staff that actually they don't need to phone me about everything and they don't need me to, like you say, go in and be the superhero because they've been trained and managed that well and have the confidence that they can deal with them situations. And I think, again, in terms of emotional resilience, confidence is key. Having confidence in your own decisions and your ability and being able to speak out for yourself is another huge one.
0: Well, a big thing for me, certainly, and I live by this now, and I say it on near enough every single training course that I deliver, is that I'm one of these people that needs to give everything I can to a situation, and now I still do that, but I do that within the constraints of my role, which is quite different than just giving everything you can, and Mm. so now my mantra that I talk about is specifically, and you'll see it actually because it's on So it's on every single emotional resilience slide within Tay training. Right at the bottom, it says, if you've done your personal best within the constraints of your role, that is all you can do. Then you need to walk away. So it's about doing your best within the constraints of your role. Yeah, absolutely. But to know those constraints is really important. And that's where we go back to the organizational policies and processes as well. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Sarah, so we've really gone full circle on this because we've gone kind of right back round to the beginning. So thank you very much for doing such a seamless podcast with me. It's been really, really enjoyable. Is there anything you'd like to say to the listeners before we sign off?
1: No, just that I've really, if you ever get the opportunity to do a podcast, do it. I, uh, you know, I was, I was quite nervous about doing this. I've never done a podcast before, but I've actually really enjoyed it, Tammy, and it's been nice kind of just chatting through things and, and clarifying things because it just makes you realise how important it really is.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time today. It's really been appreciated. Thank you too. Thanks so much for listening today. We hope it's been time well spent. I'd like to finish by saying a huge thank you. Whether you're working or volunteering on the frontline with vulnerable and or complex people, a manager supporting a team, or part of the cogs that keep the wheels of a frontline organisation turning, truly thank you. It's only together that we can help people stay safe and prevent harm and abuse. Please don't forget about yourself though. No one, no matter how amazing, can pour from an empty cup. There is a reason emotional resilience features in all our courses, irrelevant of the subject. It's because it matters. You matter. Take care of yourself. If you'd like to know more about me, Tammy Banks, Tay Training, or the Training for Influence methodology, please have a read of the show notes. You can also find us on all social media platforms at Tay Training, or contact me directly via email, tammy at taytraining.org.uk. If you hadn't noticed already, I love to talk. Have a good day.